Good morning. Please be seated. We have two cases for argument this morning. Uh, Kraus Anderson Construction versus Village Lofts and Stay versus the State of Minnesota. We'll take Kraus Anderson first. Uh, Mr. Zentner, you have reserved five minutes for rebuttal and you're using 20 of your principal and brought Mr. Alton is using 10. Is that right? All right. Let's give it a go here. Good morning again, John Zetner, Z-E-N-T-N-E-R, from the Arthur Chapman firm, along with my colleague, Mr. Markowitz, on behalf of Kraus Anderson. May it please the court and counsel, thank you for hearing this appeal this morning. What's at stake at this appeal is a substantive right of a meaningful statute of repose, the period of time granted by the legislature to not only Kraus Anderson, but to contractors and engineers who build condominiums in the state of Minnesota. We seek two holdings on two different issues. Uh, first is a 327A analysis and an application of 541.051 subdivision 4 to 327A claims as they apply to condominium buildings. First, if the court determines that 327A statutory new home warranties applies at all to condominium associations like Village Loss, then the building analysis is appropriate, supported by Krauss Anderson. So do you, are you making an argument that it doesn't apply at all? I think that is one potential conclusion both the district court and the court of appeals reached. And that is a rather simple, straightforward analysis that 327A does not apply to condominium associations. Both the district court and the court of appeals determined it did and that we must mirror and, and uh, resolve these issues between 541. What's the best argument that it doesn't apply at all? That there's no initial vendee. a pure statutory argument. Statutory argument without an initial vendee, which is one of the things the Court of Appeals struggles with in its decision, but without initial vendee, there's no warrant to be, to, to be granted, and that's what the court struggled with, I think. In the building-by-building building analysis, as opposed to the unit-by-unit unit analysis um, that uh, the association, the Court of Appeals adopted, the holding that Krauss Anderson would seek that every single condominium building in the state of Minnesota would receive a single warranty date, a single statute of repose for analyzing the statute of repose within that building, and that single statute of repose begins to run when the first purchaser buys a unit within that condominium, condominium building, along with, and I think this is important, an undivided interest in common area elements. Can I ask a question on the other end of the statute of repose, I guess? which is I understand your argument is that the cause of action for statutory warranties doesn't, didn't accrue until Village Lofts gave notice of the problem to Cross Anderson. Correct. Which is in May 2015. Correct. Okay, so anything prior to, it would anything prior to May 2005 would be subject to the statute of repose. Correct. Okay. The, the analysis for the trigger, as you'll see in subdivision one, of 541.051 is substantial completion. That relates to the common law claims. Um, for uh, the statute of repose to trigger under 541.051 subdivision four, as it applies to 327A warranty claims, is the effective warranty date. When they breach the warranty, basically. Not for trigger of the statute of repose, for the trigger for that 10 year to start, for the 10 years to start running. I'm asking for the 10 years to end. 10 years would end. Um, 10 years after the initial vendee would purchase the first unit. 
and, and I guess my question is, I think I have this right, but under day masonry in those cases, it would be, you'd have to act, you'd have to notify the contractor within 10 years. Correct. Okay. For, a, for the uh, 327A claims. Correct. <clears throat> um, on the issue of the um, common law, the holding that we seek is an affirmance of both the Court of Appeals and the district court rulings that we have two buildings here at the Village Loft Association. Two buildings trigger two improvements under 541-051, subdivision one. And with two improvements to real property, we have two separate independent statute of repose analysis. Consistent with the district court and the court of appeals ruling, along with the lights versus NSP power case, buildings A and B are separate improvements. to Council, what is our scope of review on the one versus two improvement business? Um, the test is whether there's a continuous improvement. Is that a question of fact, a question of law, or a mixed question of fact and law? I believe that's a question of law, um, Justice Lillehog. And uh, I answer that only because 541-051 subdivision one says the application should be substantial or should be triggered upon substantial completion. And that substantial completion is straightforward, not only in the legislature, legislative intent, but also the directive from the case law. So as a matter of law, uh, certainly applying the facts of this particular case, we see undisputed facts from the district court that as a matter of law, both of these claims accrued 10 years after substantial completion. Well, there are disputed facts over how the building was marketed, whether it was marketed as one improvement or two. Correct. And the district court said, I can't consider those facts. Correct. Why, why is that? Why can't the district court consider those facts? I think the Court of Appeals is spot on on this particular issue under 541-051 subdivision one. The operative language is substantial completion of the construction. And that's what has guided this court and both the legislature for a number of years in resolution of whether or not something's an improvement to real property. Even the association at page five of their reply brief concedes that both building A and building B are separate improvements to real property. So while those fact issues uh, perhaps are interesting to the argument advanced by the association, under the uh, clear language of the statute, it's substantial completion of the construction that governs. Sure, subdivision two does refer to substantial completion of construction as what triggers the 10 years, but isn't it substantial completion of the construction implicitly of the improvement? It is, Your Honor, and in this particular Doesn't case, that then beg the question what improvement means? Yes, an improvement under lights versus NSP and uh, Pacific Indemnity is an improvement to real property, and Building A did just that, regardless of whether Building B was going to be built or a parking garage was going to be built. In fact, I think 32 unit members moved into Building A uh, before Building B was even completed. Uh, the next, uh, with that holding uh, for the common law issues, our position is when applying the two buildings, two improvements, both Building A and Building B are barred by the statute of repose. I want to deal with um, a suggestion at the outset here when we dive into 327A perhaps a bit more, is um, that Krauss Anderson's analysis supported by the district court um, is that somehow condominium unit owners in the state of Minnesota, if we apply a building by building analysis, will be second class citizens. And nothing could be further from the position that Krauss Anderson in the district court is taking. Uh, 
Uh, first, what's important here is individual unit Council, can we, um, yes. on that issue, so let's say that the um, building is 70% completed, and let's say that um, Justice Lillahog purchases unit uh, 201, but he does so before it's even the 70% completed. Um, does that matter? And does, well, let's start there. Does that matter? To your analysis? I think the operative analysis would um, be more governed by the, uh, either for common law claims, a substantial completion, or the effective warranty date, which would be defined as the initial first purchaser. Okay. So in our analysis, the 70% turnover is more akin to a Makiowa claim that is under 515 that the association had a right to bring in this action, but chose not to because at 75%, the declarant, which in this case is housing partners, turns over the association to uh, the, I'm sorry, turns over the building to the association to govern. So I don't, think, I don't think in the statute of repose that 70% matters as much as the trigger of substantial completion and or the effective warranty date trigger. But let's say, let's say, let's add to that. I'm still on. Let's say that um, Justice Lillahog purchases it at the 70% completion, but then there's a delay, um, and the building doesn't get completed as thought, and a couple years go by. Uh, is that does that matter? N not for Justice Lillahog's um, 327A claims under the statute, because presumably Justice Lillahog, when he purchased his unit, the building was substantially complete, number one, and even if he wasn't the initial purchaser, the building was put to its intended use. Under the building by building analysis, when Justice Lillahog purchases that condo, let's even say it's in year three or four, the common area elements, like the HVAC in this case, are being put to use. So if there's a delay in, in building uh, years four, five, or six for additional units behind Justice Lillahog, that shouldn't matter for the building as a whole. Justice Lillahog, if- But I'm yeah. talking like a pre-purchase. So for example, before the building is completed. So it's marketed, it's not completed. He sees the makeup, the model, and says, yep, I wanna buy that. I'm so, and he purchases, but okay. the building isn't completed. It's it's then it's 70% completed, but then it doesn't actually, it doesn't get to the point where he can move in for let's say three years. Does it matter when he moves in or does it matter when he purchases the unit? It matters when he purchases the unit and under the subdivision um, eight, the warranty date would be effective the date, the initial vendee's first occupancy of the dwelling. So perhaps in that, in that particular case, he didn't or the date on which the initial vendee takes legal or equitable title in the dwelling, but he cannot occupy it until the building is substantially complete. The, the rub here is when the HVAC system in this particular case is put into service and someone after Justice Lillahog then uh, lives in the building and it's no longer a new unit. It's no longer a new building. It's no longer a new dwelling as defined under 327A. And I'm kind of wondering what kind of countertops do I have? <laughs> Wonderful ones. So, <laughs> well, to that point, kind of a little bit. So, as I understand it, the way it worked in this case, at least, Cross Anderson agreed in the initial contract with housing partners that if a condo unit wanted to do a build out, that Cross Anderson would do that, but they'd have to be paid more money to do the countertops and if they, uh, different items, right? Is that correct? Okay. And so, are those new build out changes? 
that the count the condo owner is paying for separately does there is there a new warranty date as to those changes there could be and it's an excellent question and let's use an example where Krauss Anderson wasn't the contractor that did the build out okay um, so Krauss Anderson under the building by building analysis we ensure finality we have a one year a two year and a ten year then five years later Justice Lillehog wants an improvement in his um, backsplash he, uh, even a new owner okay so a new owner comes in and, and hires a different contractor absolutely that unit owner should have a one two and ten year warranty for major construction defects within the uh, four corners of the unit from that subsequent contractor that the contractor did so the even though the HVAC unit affects it it would only be as to what that contractor contracted to do. correct it theoretically so there could be a new there could be absolutely a three, new 327A warranty. The difference here and what makes it very difficult are the common area elements. So Krauss Anderson put in the common area elements are the HVAC. They've been in place for five years. We want a 10-year statute of repose for 327A. A new contractor comes in, puts in new cabinets, puts in new uh, backsplash, puts in a new shower. That could be subject to both a one, two, and 10-year warranty. So there could be two warranty dates in a sense, one for the building and the common elements, and then one for whatever new stuff this Correct. particular owner wanted. The, the, the uh, potential flaw in that logical conclusion would be when Krauss Anderson also does that build out and does the original construction. We want to ensure there's our, those are two different statute of repose potentials. Yeah, but there could be a separate contract for the specific owner build out. There absolutely could. And they pay separately for that. Correct. Council, uh, yes. I, I have to confess to a certain amount of uncertainty based on something you said right at the outset of your argument. So what is your client's position about whether there's a statutory warranty claim in this case? There is a statutory warranty that was asserted both against Krauss Anderson and housing partners. But I thought you said at the beginning that there's no, the, the, so I thought the issue in this case was when does the claim begin to run? Does it begin to run uh, when, when based on the building as a whole building or does it begin to run on a unit by unit basis? Yes. But I thought you said at the beginning, we don't even have to get there because there's no initial Vendi. So therefore there is no statutory warranty claim. That's where I got, maybe I misunderstood your argument. And that's fair. And it won't be the first time that I have misspoke on this particular issue because it is hard square peg round hole to apply 327A new home statutory warranties to condo buildings like this. The Court of Appeals and the District Court both determined that, hey, one reasonable solution may be a very quick, short order. 327A doesn't apply to condos. That could be. Without initial vendee, we never have a vendee. And without a new building, we never have a statutory home warranty. But both the Court of Appeals, the District Court, and Krauss Anderson is saying, they, there, there may be an application for that. And if you find that there's no ambiguity, then we look to the statutory construction of 541 and 327A, and there's two roadmaps. One is a building by building analysis, one is a unit by unit analysis. And, and Chief Justice, you're absolutely correct. It may be that 327A doesn't apply. And Krauss Anderson would agree with it. But we're looking to find a balance. But that's not your principal not position. Not okay. It is a potential solution to the 327A application to condos. Our solution promotes both consumer rights by allowing individual condo unit owners to have a one, two, and 10-year under 327, 
but honoring the 2004 amendment following the Coast decision, which said clearly that 327A must have a statute of repose. And for builders and contractors and engineers in the state of Minnesota, we can enjoy that finality of stale claims. Council, let's go yep. back to single versus multiple improvements again. Yes. And uh, I wanted to ask you, when, if I bought my condo in building A, was I also buying an interest in the development that became building B? Interest in the development. You're definitely buying an undivided interest in the condominium that you are purchasing, correct? That's in building A, but am I also buying an interest in the common elements in what will be building B? No. There so are two, so there are council for the uh, association is just wrong in that regard? Yes. They are two separate buildings, two separate substantial completions, two separate certificates of occupancy from the uh, city of Minneapolis, and that's what's wrong with a one improvement analysis as promoted by the association and rejected by both the district court and the court of appeals. So when I build, when I buy my unit in building A, am I also buying a parking space in building B? You could if building B gets finished, but I throw a hypothetical back to Justice Lillehog, and that would be what if building B is never completed? What if build the parking garage in building B is never completed, but you move into building A and you enjoy the benefits of the HVAC system within building A? That's an improvement to real property. So I, when I buy my condo in building A, I can't buy a parking space in what is going to be building B? You could, and if the developer chose to not hire Krauss Anderson to construct that, you would have a Makiowa claim for six years for misrepresentation yeah, but, by but the developer. but isn't the developer telling me building B is gonna be built and I can get my parking spot there? I don't wanna buy a condo in A and not have a parking spot. Correct, and if that happens, under our analysis for the common law application of 541051 subdivision one, you still have a cause of action. And that cause of action would be Makiowa, a, a, a long... Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about single versus multiple improvements here. In a very real sense, when I buy an A, um, I'm assuming B is part of the improvement, aren't I? Fair. The facts of this particular case are not a parking garage or an exercise room or a tunnel between the buildings. They are individual HVAC systems designed by separate uh, individual HVAC contractors, constructed by the same contractor, to be fair, but completely separate pipes so not required. It sounds upon quite one. a bit like the Court International building in the Witcher construction case, where you have a single building, but it's divided into two pieces of property. And in, in some of it is shell work, some of it is tenant work, but you conceive of the development as a single project, a single development. What Wasn't the developer conceiving of building A and building B being a single development project? Um, two points. One, Wichter involved a, a statutory lien case, did not look at 541.051 at all. It's also not a condominium building with common area elements with subject rights for the association under Makiowa to bring those claims. Yeah, so but, think, it was, but this is about an, what's an improvement, and isn't the, wouldn't the test for improvement be the same for lien purposes as for repose purposes? I don't think so. I think that the Wichter case talks about the differences, or at least with regards to the relation of the lien claim, as to who's first in priority when looking at an improvement to real property, not a trigger of substantial completion under 541.051. So well, the Witcher case was about improvement in, in the lien statute. So why, as a principal matter, does the word improvement mean one thing in the lien statute and another in the statute of repose? Because 541.051 talks about substantial completion. 
and a substantial completion of an improvement. And at least as far as Krauss Anderson is concerned, once it builds its building and turns it over uh, to the developer that contracted with Krauss Anderson, what happens beyond that is gonna de determine upon what the association does. So I think that case is distinguishable with all due respect, Justice Lillard. Council, if I, I may, I, I wanna go back to, I think you started down this route at one point and then we got into some other things, but this idea that, as you said, that your opponents uh, claim that if we adopt Krauss Anderson's position, uh, condo owners become sort of second class uh, homeowners. Yes, Your Honor. And, and I think that position, their position comes from the idea or the fact that if we say there's only one warranty date for each building, under the 10-year the warranty provision, that interpretation then gets applied to the one-year and the two-year warranties, correct? I mean, we have to do that. Otherwise, it, 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 it really makes a bigger mess than we already have here. But, um, and if that's true, that does seem to me to undercut uh, substantially uh, the warranties that are, are provided um, uh, in subdivision one of, of 327A. Why isn't that the case? Um, Your Honor, with respect to the court, my time has expired. May I respond to that yes. question? Yes. Thank you. Um, nothing in 327A requires a homeowner to bring a claim for a one-year workmanship warranty claim or a two-year statutory HVAC warranty claim within that period. That's the Coast case and the Vlahos case. It's directly on point to the exact scenario that the association is trying to lead this court down wrongly in our opinion. The legislature and the case law is clear. To the trigger to bring a warranty claim under one and two is not discovery of the injury within year one or two, but it's discovery of the builder's refusal to honor the warranty. So we'll use Justice Lillehog's example. If he purchases in year five, he still has a one-year warranty for workmanship, a two-year work, uh, HVAC warranty uh, that are allowed under the statute. Krauss Anderson is not taking away those rights because those rights still exist. They did not know or should have known that the builder was gonna refuse to honor a warranty because they didn't own the unit in between years one and five. Now with Krauss Anderson's analysis, he has, Justice Lillehog has year five, six, seven, eight, or nine to bring that one or two year claim once there's an observable defect noticed to the vendor, which would be Krauss Anderson, and then Krauss Anderson refuses to honor that warranty. That's when the claim is triggered. And that's the difference with the analysis because Krauss Anderson doesn't look to take away rights. We look to limit the time in which you can bring a claim to be consistent with the 2004 amendment under COAST. Thank you, Council. You, Thank you have Honor. five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, uh, Mr. Alton, you have 10 minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> and may it please the court, my name is Brock Alton. I am here today arguing on behalf of Housing Partners 3 Lofts LLC, one of the appellants in this case. Uh, I, I agree with Mr. Zentner's statement of what's at issue here and the relief being sought uh, before this court. I wanna start with uh, a point that I think Mr. Zentner was going to make, um, at least uh, in, in what I heard, um, although I brought this to bear in a slightly different way than Mr. Zentner, in that I think uh, we are the only party to argue that the district court and court of appeals 
were both incorrect in holding that application of 327A uh, and the meaning of warranty in that chapter to be ambiguous uh, isn't necessary to begin with. And this interpretation that both courts uh, engaged in um, was improper for that reason. And to sort of understand that and get to the point, uh, I think what needs to be examined is what exactly a unit owner receives when they buy into a condominium building. And actually, this was raised in uh, respondents' brief. I think it was on page five of their brief. They discuss exactly what a condominium is and what you receive. And uh, in section 515B.1-103 of, this is MN Kiowa, uh, condominium is defined to mean a common interest community in which one, portions of the real estate are designated as units. Two, the remainder of the real estate is designated for common ownership solely by the owners of the units. And three, undivided interests in the common elements are vested in unit owners. So when you purchase a condominium unit in building 100 or any other condominium, you're not just buying into your unit. You're also obtaining a undivided interest in all of the common elements of that building. That would include the HVAC system at issue here. So when I look at the Court of Appeals determination, the court says there's three potential reasonable interpretations of what a warranty date means under section 320, uh, 327A.01, a definition of warranty, um, which is that the, the earliest of either the initial Vendee's first occupancy or when they obtain title. Um, I, I think, in fact, only one of those uh, supposed reasonable interpretations is reasonable. And if there's only one reasonable interpretation, there is no ambiguity, and this court can stop there. Um, so starting with the one I believe is reasonable, and it's also the first one raised by the Court of Appeals, the one uh, pushed by both uh, my client and Cross Anderson in this case, uh, what the court states is that one reasonable uh, interpretation is that the purchase of the first unit determines the overall warranty date, effective warranty date, for the entire building. The Court of Appeals said this works, and it has a plus side, in that dwelling is defined as the building as a whole, and so you want the warranty date to run on the building as a whole. With that, I would agree. They said it had a downside, which is that no initial vendee exists because no one person purchases the entire building. And frankly, there is some truth to that. No one person is purchasing all of those units along with everything else in the building. But what the initial vendee does purchase is not just their unit, but an undivided interest in all of the common elements of the building. So when you read building, what is a dwelling, it is a building, I believe it is reasonable to include or conclude that that uh, undivided interest in the common elements makes the initial vendee the person who commences the statute, uh, or excuse me, the effective warranty date for the entire building. When you move to the next supposed reasonable analysis, however, I don't believe that, uh, that the same can be said, and that's the unit by unit analysis. Here the court said that there's a plus side um, because it recognizes that an initial vendee or any subsequent vendee only purchases uh, their own unit, not an entire building, um, but recognized the downside because in order to do so, in order to run each warranty separately, the court would have to read unit into the statute. Dwelling doesn't mean unit, it's quite clear. Um, but I don't think that upside exists. While it is true that uh, in the context of the unit itself, it might be reasonable to read the statute to mean that, um, that each unit should have a separate warranty, 
the undivided interest in the common elements makes that untrue. So initial vendee steps in, purchases a unit, they've already got an ownership interest in the HVAC system at issue in this case, or in any other common element in this building. Every subsequent vendee is not the first purchaser of those items. It's Council, has, has anyone contended that the condo association is a vendee? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Okay. So that, that issue is not here in the case as to how the, the term initial vendee should be interpreted? I don't believe so, Your Honor. And if you look at initial vendee, I think that would be difficult because there's not a purchase by an association of a unit or a building as a whole or anything else, frankly. There's a turnover. Initially, my client owns the association and turns the association over to the unit owners in this case when 75% of the units were, uh, were built. I believe the turnover happened in 2005, and I think it was January, so that would be convenient, Your Honor, in that that's more than 10 years prior to the running of the warranty date. January 12, 2005, I think. So if you, look at the, if you look at the title to the land under buildings A and B, wouldn't it have been transferred from Housing Partners to the Village Lofts Association in January 2005? Well, the association already exists, Your Honor. It's transfer of control of the association. So, look, I would, if, frankly, if you want to make that ruling, it, it certainly works for my client. No, I'm not, not trying to rush there. I'm trying to, to see if there's a not yet another interpretation of the statute. So, as of January, as of December 2004, who owned the land on which Buildings A and Building, building B sat? At that time, uh, my understanding is the land is owned by the association, but the association is controlled by my client. Oh, I see. So the land's owned by the association in the first instance? Right. Okay. But that the declaration already exists, that, that the association already exists, that my client controls the association, certainly has the right to sell the units. Okay. I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole any further. Okay. Thing. Thank you. Um, uh, to return to where I was, I don't believe, and, and I think this case is a perfect illustration, that reading a unit-by-unit unit analysis where there's a building where every owner in the building has an undivided interest in the common elements is in fact consistent with the statute 327A in and of itself. No secondary purchaser, no second, third, fourth, fifth purchaser can ever be considered an initial vendee of those items. And it's those items that are at issue in this case. When, do you know when unit A120 was purchased or occupied? I don't know offhand for A120. And do you know how many units were occupied before May of 2005? Most of the units were occupied before May of 2005. Either one or two were not. This is building 100. Okay. In building 100, there was at least one unit that wasn't occupied until January of 2006. Okay. I think uh, in the papers it stated 2016, that was a typo. January 2006, and there was no certificate of occupancy on that unit, which I think was A710. So if this is unit by unit, assuming we go down there, how do you ever figure out what the damages are? Because presumably, you can only collect damages related to the units that came in after the, the warranty date for that unit is less than 10 years from the statute of repose time, right? If the, I'm kind of, so how, how do you divide up the damages if it's unit by unit? Your Honor, I think it's a fair question and an open question, and it was certainly raised in the amicus brief. Uh, if, if only two units, say, in A100 were unoccupied at the time 10 years prior to uh, uh, the 2005 notice, and we have two to go, 
uh, and the association now has to fix this alleged issue with the air conditioning units, do they get just two divided by 60 whatever units there are in that building worth of damages, or do they receive damages for the entire repair? It's not an issue that's been decided. Certainly would need to be argued, and I would assert that the claims would be barred for all of the individuals uh, who purchased in prior to that date. But they all do have an undivided interest in that property. Do the damages change? That's, that's, a, that's a difficult question, Your Honor, and something that I do think needs to be wrestled with. Um, I'm down to my last minute. So uh, just switching quickly, uh, assuming that the court agrees there is an ambiguity, I just wanted to point out, uh, it seems to me that the unit-by-unit unit analysis falls apart if for nothing else in that it provides such a different statute of repose for the warranty claims uh, than it does for common law claims. And it does so without theoretical underpinning. So the Court of Appeals says uh, the unit-by-unit unit analysis is necessary to ensure that every single person who moves into this building has these warranty claims at their disposal for at least 10 years. <laughs> well, the same could be true for a negligence claim or a breach of contract claim. Some folks are buying into the building later, in one case, four years later. Those individuals are losing those claims. I don't see any reason why that should be treated differently, again, on sort of a theoretical basis rather than a, a statutory reading basis than warranty claims. Uh, and it doesn't appear to me that that was considered by the Court of Appeals in reaching its conclusion. I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Um, let's see, Mr. Hansen, you're going next. You have 22 minutes. May it please the court. My name is Einar Hansen. I'm here with my colleague, John Hagan, and we represent Village Laws at St. Anthony Falls Condominium. I'm here today to talk to you about, about two very important consumer protection issues before you. Thousands of consumers who have bought condominiums in the state of Minnesota will be affected by your ruling. In here, we have two statutes that were enacted long before condominiums became as a prevalent of a home ownership style as they are today. But these homeowners in Village Lost Condominiums had each bought a unit. There were 109 different sales by housing partners. Each of those unit owners now has spent $8,000 to fix the fan coil units in their unit. And I would note, just at the beginning, to follow up on one of the questions today, those fan coil units are limited common elements as described in the declaration at section 3.2.4. And what does that mean? As a limited common element, those are assigned to the use just of that unit. So until that unit is purchased, until that unit has its thermostat turned on, those fan coil units weren't used. And those fan coil units are central to the defect we're talking about here. So this case provides a unique ability of this court to focus in upon what exactly 327A means. But before we reach that, I would like to talk a moment about the improvements, the common law claims. Can, can I just, under, just to clarify, sorry. so there, there is a fan coil unit for each, uh, fan coil unit for each unit. Right. Two ri uh, four riser pipes go to the fan coil unit, and the connections to that is what was sagging and breaking or in, about to break, and that was what was fixed. 
Council, that 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 couldn't be for each. Was that for each unit? I mean, you're not you're not denying that there's the, there's obviously a broader HVAC system. Absolutely, and I'm not so denying that. I, I'm trying to get HVAC clear on that because I think that's a central part of your opponent's case is that that you know we're dealing here with with ownership in a common uh, element. And as a limited common element, it is owned by everybody. It's just assigned for the use by one unit. That's the way common elements are for everybody. Limited common elements is just assigned for the use of one unit. So, so just so I can just be clear on the practical. So there's a, a, a fan coil unit for each unit, but what happened was the fan coil unit, because it was too close to the piping, impacted the piping that was part of the entire HVAC system. The piping, the interrelationship was is that these riser pipes were held on by, tie by ties instead of properly secured. The weight of that causes connection between the fan clay unit and those riser pipes to start either breaking or being about to break. And that is what caused this lawsuit to have to be started. And all the fixing, the fixing has all been done. They fixed them all. Um, the one part that hasn't been focused on is what is the intended purpose of the improvement under 541.051. The last sentence... Council, before you get into the yeah. purpose, let's figure out what our scope of review is. Yes. Is the question of whether there's one improvement or two a question of fact, a question of law, or a mixed question of law and fact? I welcome that question. It is a question of fact, most assuredly, because what we are talking here is the intended purpose of this improvement in the sale between the buyer and the seller. In fact, that has already been eloquently described and admitted to by housing partners, the developer of this case. Arnie Gregory, the developer, eloquently described in his deposition under my questioning that he intended to be selling an interest in this entire condominium to these buyers. That is what he intended. That's what the marketing is. That's what's reflected in the purchase agreements. Mr. Gregory said, yes, I showed this scale model, which was in this, is page three of our addendum, to the city council as to what I was building. I showed this to all buyers. They knew they were buying an interest in an entire condominium, not just a unit and yeah, not but just council, the council, both the mechanics lien statute, which uses the term improvement, and the statute of repose, which uses the word improvement, seem to contemplate, though, that what's an improvement is going to at least be uh, in the eyes of the contractor. Um, would you agree that improvement means the same thing in the mechanics lien statute as it does in the statute of repose? I actually don't, although I think the Witcher case is very instructive because it talks about the parties. Here, in the sale... Wait, wait a minute. You, you rely on the Witcher case really as your primary authority. And I agree with that. And but I think the Witcher case is so. So how does the word improvement in the mechanics lien statute differ from that in the statute of repose? The only difference is that in the Witcher case, you're talking about a mechanics lien, which is a right of the contractor. Here in the condominium context, you're talking about the rights of the buyers of units. So it is the same analysis. I agree with the analysis. It's just applied here to the buyer and seller, the developer and the homeowner context, as opposed to the contractor and his rights of mechanics liens. That's all I'm saying is the difference. Otherwise, I think the Witcher case has the correct analysis about that. So let's say there's a contractor who worked on building A and didn't get paid. Could the contractor lien not only the property on which building A stood, but the, the property on which building B stands as well? Is it a single improvement from the contractor's standpoint? I'm glad you asked that question because if you 
look at the statute 541.051, it says substantial completion is when the buyer can use what he bought for its intended purpose and gets back to your question about material issue of fact. Without defining what the buyer's intended purpose yeah, is. I'm talking about under the mechanics lien statute. I agree. Can Could, the can the contractor lien not just the building A property on which he worked, but lien building B because it's all part of the same improvement? I honestly don't know, Your Honor. I, I don't know whether that would apply in the mechanics lien context. If it's a single improvement, then of course you can lien everything, can't you? Well, if your contract has to do with doing a particular thing, I guess you are right. You could lien the whole thing. But there is special rules that apply to liens on, on condominiums that apply. And I'm afraid I'm not versed on that. But if I believe that you would be putting a lien against whatever is described in the common interest certificate for the condominium. Well, like in this case, we had a, um, I think it was a mechanical engineer who worked on building A and not building B. Am I right on, on the facts? That is correct, but we have a mechanic. He was working for a mechanical contractor who worked, who worked on, on both. both. Okay. And so if you go down but the line it, far enough, you could have any number of different improvements. You could have improvements of who built out this particular unit. You could have any number of improvements, and that is not fitting into the last sentence of subdivision one which says is the intended, when the buyer can put it to their intended purpose. Here, I take the example of John Larkey, who bought a unit in building A, two parking spots in the building to be built under building B, and all the amenities in both. So John Larkey, because of that one sale, there is no second closing, because of that one sale, he can go home, park his car in the continuous underground garage under both buildings A and B, take the elevator up and use the exercise room in building B, and then go back to building A across the common plaza, which is part of the condominium, to his unit in building A and have dinner. Did his contract, though, say that if building, that there's a potential that building B is never built? I thought I remember that from the briefs, that, and that then he has some kind of claim under, either, I suppose, the contract and under McCoy. Or that is an argument that has been made by uh, the defendants. But in fact, there is no such mention. What it says is that it includes two underground parking stalls that Hunt, uh, that he'll get when Hunt Gregory receives the certificate of occupancy for the 150 building. But I thought there was some language in there that qualified that or conditioned that and say there's no guarantee that building B is ever gonna get built. In the disclosure statement, there is that statement. Okay. But in the disclosure statement, also it describes it in paragraph three as being an integrated project consisting of two buildings, an underground garage, and a plaza. Now, I submit that if they hadn't built building, this is a hypothetical, this is speculation, not the case in front of us. And I just only want to say that because in deciding the case here, you do not need to reach that. But having said that, I would say that that buyer, Mr. Larkey, would have a right of action against housing partners if in fact they hadn't built building B, what in fact they took his money for an integrated economy. And I, and I think these housing partners kind of conceded that a little bit, uh, but it would be a claim under the common interest owner, common interest owner act. No, it would be a common law claim. Or a common law claim. Misrepresentation. Right, yes. After, and uh, it would be, and in terms of the, the Kiowa, I'm sorry. In terms of in Kiowa, I would disagree. I mean, 
I don't see how MCAIO applies here, and, and it would be really just a straightforward misrepresentation common law case, which fits in again to the intended purpose, which is the crucial point on that. So can I ask a different hypothetical? Absolutely. So what if I planned, I hired an architect, planned a million dollar house, but then it turns out I only have $650,000. And so I go ahead and build the part of the house that I can build with the $650,000, move in, and then two years later, I inherit the additional $350,000 and finish off the master suite and finish off the house. Is that one improvement or two improvements? Well, uh, Your Honor, this was a, something that has been confronted in certain cases, and they've looked at the amount of time and the various facts in that. If you are talking about the relationship between that owner and that contractor as to whether it's one or two contracts, you'd have to look as to whether all the factors that were looked at in the Witcher case in terms of was it one or two contracts, was there common financing, was this uh, was gap in time enough. I would submit none of those factors are present here. There was no gap in time between building A and B. If you look at the homeowner affidavits, they're very clear on the fact that construction was continuous on A and B. There was no gap in time. What was the construction in A? Do we know? Was that finishing out units or was that finishing like the well, common parts of the building? It was finishing out both because if you look at the Krauss-Anderson contract, you will see there are different substantial completion dates. There are different uh, milestones for it to reach from the shell and floors one through three and then the floors above that. So it was in a continuous fashion. But the, the overall occupancy certificate was issued, was that issued before or after B was started? For, for, for building A, the occupancy, was that before building B was started? This is an interesting point because certificate of occupancy is important for housing partners to get the shell and common elements built so we can start selling units. It doesn't mean that the building is all built. It just means that under MCIWA, it now has the ability to start selling units because it has a certificate of occupancy on the shell. It does not mean the units are all done. And that's why there's all these additional certificates of occupancy going on and on and on. Council, um, uh, can you, um, uh, I'd like to climb out of the weeds here a little bit, although I suspect we won't be out of them very long. We'll be diving back in. But can you give me um, sort of a Reader's Digest roadmap of why you think you should prevail here? Um, so that I can compare that to the argument we heard from Cross Anderson. Thank you very much, Justice Anderson. I appreciate that. The Reader's Digest portion of this is for 541.051, the improvement that was sold to these buyers was an interest in an integrated condominium where they both got an individual unit and they got an undivided interest in the entire condominium. And that is, in fact, what happened. And it is true under the law. It's both true under the facts. That is why the court should find that until that entire condominium had been built, these buyers hadn't gotten what it was that the intended purpose was for them and substantial completion hadn't been reached. That's the one issue. The other issue is 327A. And the only way in which you can take this older statute and give these people the one, two, and ten-year warranties that they are entitled to under the statute is by having a unit-by-unit unit analysis. Remember, 327A only has to do with the sale of units. It does not have anything to do with the construction. 
And this risk of when housing partners will be able to sell the units is the same for selling condominium units or selling single family homes. Think about the fact that all the people who built homes as single family homes in the 2007 collapse, that same risk of when those developers would be able to sell their single family home and that warranty date would be put in place, that risk is no different than the housing partner's desire to sell all these units off and have separate warranty dates. After all, in the uh, disclosure statement given to these buyers, housing partners told them they were getting one, two, and 10-year warranties with the purchase of their unit. It doesn't work any hardship on housing partners to have them live up to the warranties they said they were giving. And in fact, it makes every sense, as the Court of Appeal stated, under the statute. There is no initial vendee. Nobody bought the whole building. There is no one who has that the idea that all the common elements were being put to use when that first buyer went into place is not true because each unit has limited common elements and those limited common elements aren't put into play until that unit is sold. What in fact, if you're gonna go down that road would be the correct analysis would be that you wouldn't have the warranty date start until the last unit was sold because that is when the common elements, limited common elements for the entire building have been put into place, the entire condominium being put into place. The Court of Appeals analysis is much more of a common sense that fits with the consumer protection aspect of 327A by giving each of these people one, two, and 10 year warranties. Can I, can I ask just a couple follow up sure. on that? First, is this issue that 327A doesn't apply to condominiums at all, is that a live issue in this case? I do not believe so, Your Honor. This is something which, frankly, the Court of Appeals wanted to be comprehensive in their ideas of discussing the difficulties of 327A, but I do not believe it's a Was the issue. argument ever made of the district court? I don't recall it being made okay. in the district court. Okay. So it would be a new issue on appeal, I believe, Your Honor. How how did you? How is the unit by unit argument that you're making? How is that a reasonable interpretation of the statute in light of the definition of dwelling? Dwelling is defined as uh, a building newly occupied, but is triggered by the initial vendee purchasing a dwelling. And an initial vendee, if if you define dwelling as being the building, no initial vendee purchased the entire building. Initial vendees bought units and an interest in the condominium association, or condominium. And therefore, you don't have an initial vendee. If you looked at the, if you looked at it literally, there would never be an initial vendee, and therefore, these warranties would last forever. The counterwise, the counter argument, Your Honor, is that if you adopted theirs, if you weren't the initial vendee, after one year, you would not have no warranty. After two years from the first purchase, you would have no two-year warranty. When you purchased, it would already be past, one or two years past, the warranty date. And though unlike their argument that somehow you would still have an ability to sue, you wouldn't because you never got a warranty. So is your position that the statute is ambiguous or not ambiguous? I believe it is ambiguous, and I look to the court to interpret it. Because so it's subject to two or more reasonable interpretations. 
I would agree with that, Your Honor. So why don't we just go to the legislative purpose then, which is to have an end date? That's why you write a statute of repose. And why doesn't that mean your client loses? Actually, Your Honor, we go to the statute, which is 327A. And the statute 327A is a consumer protection statute. And it is intended to give one, two, and ten-year warranties. You can't construe the warranty date in subdivision four uh, of 541.051 is defined by 327A. And I think you have to look to the purpose of 327A to give union owners the same rights as a single-family home buyer would have. Counsel, I, I think that goes back to my conversation with Mr. Zenter because, so he, if I understood him correctly, condominium owners would still have the right to sue, correct? I mean, you may not have these specific warranties. I think you were, you were about to talk about that point. What would be left? I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. What would condominium owners have left? That's what I'm not clear about. And I understand that. There are two other sets of rights. One is under MKIWA. Those are six-year warranties. They run from typically the turnover of the association to uh, the governance of homeowners. The others would be common law rights. That'd be under subdivision one, which we've spoken about before. Those rights would be left. But I don't see anything in- In your view, they would, owners would not have the rights for the one and the two-year warranties. If the one, two, or ten-year war well, one or two-year warranties, that is correct. Right. And they would have a much reduced ten-year warranty if, if that occurred. So, so let's go to, um, uh, you know, some of the arguments that opposing counsel made in their brief, although not so much an oral argument this morning, um, but certainly the amicus makes in its brief, and that is um, all the various um, ramifications from your situation. Now, you correctly point out, I think, that some of those are, uh, they border on the absurd bankrolling a unit so the statute never runs, et cetera. But there are lots of other points that are raised there about the practical problems associated with your approach, particularly in light of the question the chief asked, which is the purpose of a statute of repose is to make these things, make stale claims go away. How do you respond to the practical difficulties associated with your interpretation? First of all, I do not believe that it is difficult to figure out what one, two, and ten years are from the different sale dates of these units. That would be of record down at the courthouse. I would know, the developer who's giving me the warranties would know when he sold me the unit, and you could mark it off that. Second thing, in terms of there being, a, 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 the AGC talks a lot about the difficulties of contractors. This isn't about contractors. This is about sellers of homes to buyers. And therefore, it always has to do with when those sale dates occur, not when the construction is completed. Um, I'm sorry, Your Honor, is there another practical difficulty? You no, I, I think that's the issue I was going at. Yeah. Well, Council, in the time you have left, can you describe for me who owned the property under which building A was located, under which building B was located, and at what times? Thank you so much for allowing me to, for reminding you of that, uh, Justice Lillehog. What happens is that Housing Partners, as the developer, owns the entire build, owns the entire project, and they have control of the entire project. Both and are they are they are they separate pieces of property, or is it one piece of property? They're titled separately, so okay. each unit has a separate title. Um, I'm, I'm talking a, about the, a, the underlying property. I'm not talking about what. By I, we're confusing the word unit here. The property under which Building A sat, who owned that? 
uh, housing partners would own that in conjunction with whoever it has sold a unit with. Yeah, but even before, I'm assuming the building's not yet built. Okay. Housing, housing partners, partners owns it. it. And the, the land under on which building B was built, housing partners owned that? Correct. Were they separate pieces of property? What they, yes. Or were they, they one piece of property? They were, they were separate pieces of property in the sense that building B was described as additional property and was added by an amendment to the declaration to the condominium. All right, and then may I ask one more question, Chief? And then when did the transfer of the property under which building B, building A sat, when was that, that was transferred to the association? It never was transferred to the association. The association doesn't own it, it actually manages it on behalf. Okay, so Housing Partners still owns those two, owns the, the, the ground? Housing Partners owns that along with the owners of the units because it's a joint ownership. When Once Housing Partners starts selling units, it becomes in joint ownership. And once Building B is added to the condominium, those people who have purchased in Building A automatically become owners of Building B. There is no second closing. They automatically. Thank you. And it's in the control of the developer to do that. Hold on one second. Justice Thiessen has a question. Yeah, I just have one more question. So. One of the arguments made at the end of uh, Krauss Anderson's uh, presentation was that we don't have to worry about the one and two year warranties because those warranties don't arise until there's an actual breach that's given, that someone gives notice of the breach. So there's a 10 year test test repose issue, but for someone that buys in in 2007, they would still have several years for this. They could, they could, their, their claim doesn't accrue until they actually give notice that something happened. So if there's a problem with the crack in the sheet wall, it's not that it would, that a warranty would start to run when the first owner bought it, but when the first person gave notice to Krauss Anderson that there was a problem. Can you respond to that? Thank you, Justice Thiessen. The point that Krauss Anderson seeks to make is that somehow there still would be a warranty, but the warranty date is what sets off the expiration of the warranty. I don't see how there'd be an ability to claim a warranty that you never got because the warranty date was set by the first buyer. I don't understand that argument at all. There never was a warranty, so how would I sue for that one or two year uh, warranty unless I had gotten it when I purchased the unit? And 327A does not make a distinction between my ownership of my unit and my ownership of all the common elements. So I don't see how that's workable at all. Thank you, Council. You have uh, three minutes for your sir rebuttal. Now, on main rebuttal, Mr. Zentner, Zentner, you're doing that, and you have five minutes. Mr. Zentner, if you could follow up when you get ready there with an answer to that. I'm, I'm, as you can tell probably, I'm stuck on this warranty because it seems to me we are trying, we've got to figure out, you know, what horse we're going to ride here. And, and it does seem like we're trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole. And if we're going to do that, it would help me to know what is left for condominium owners and, and, and in terms of warranties and what I hear Mr. Alton saying is, um, I'm sorry, not Mr. Alton, counsel saying, <laughs> is that how can you have uh, sue on a warranty you never got? 
So help help me with that. Uh, thank you, uh, Justice, for the additional time here. Um, in direct response to that question, I would implore the court to read Justice Anderson's decision in the Coast versus uh, Advanced Design case. Uh, it's squarely on point on this particular issue. And it's an attempt by the association that the sky is falling here for condominium unit owners within the state of Minnesota under a building by building analysis, but it's not. And if we were in district court arguing whether or not in year five, the one year workmanship warranty was available to the association, I can guarantee you it'd be a different answer because they would believe in district court that it absolutely applies because it hasn't been triggered because they have not notified the builder of a potential defect and the builder hasn't refused to honor the warranty. Coast versus Advanced Design says exactly that. And that roadmap is the heart of what Krauss Anderson's reasonable position here is because we could be in front of this court saying 327A simply doesn't apply. Sorry, condominium unit owners, you've got Makaiwa and you've got common law claims, but we're not trying to do that. We're trying to find a balance with that square peg round hole. And frankly, all of these questions Council, touch can on I the just, exact can same I just, I mean, I don't know though. I mean, it seems to me your interpretation is not reasonable because as you started out your argument, there's really no initial vendee. Their interpretation isn't reasonable because the statute defines dwelling as a building. So, so what do we do then? I mean, there's really no reasonable interpretation here. Then you find the plain language of the statute of 327A doesn't apply to condominium buildings. That's what the Court of Appeals and the District Court both But that's the issue that really wasn't raised. As I understand, housing partners said that they argued that. We're, we are not, that is not the principal argument because we're trying to find that balance here. That's what we're trying to do. Because both courts, Your Honor, Chief Justice said, there are other reasonable interpretations, and that's frankly one of them. But ours is the only way that we can balance all of the rights that the consumers are talking about and are entitled to 327A with the importance of the 2004 amendment after the Coase decision, which said 327A has to have a statute of repose because in the state of Minnesota, for contractors and engineers, we have to be able to buy our stale claims. How does 327A apply to apartment buildings? Good question. I think it's the same argument, and it's another potential rabbit hole that there wouldn't be an initial vendee because the initial vendee would be a developer purchasing not for... Has it been applied to apartment buildings? There's one district court case, I think, that we cited in our case where Judge Dickstein ruled against me, actually, and arguing that 327A does not apply to apartment buildings. So they, he ruled that it does not apply? Okay, and what about like a... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me... Let me he ruled that? that it does, does apply. He ruled that it did apply, that 327A, consistent with the Court of Appeals' reasonable approach, which is the legislature gave rights to consumers, which said every dwelling, which is defined as a new building, should be free from major construction defect for 10 years. But that's the only case we have out there dealing with apartment buildings. Correct. Only case on apartment buildings that I'm aware of. And what about a duplex? Has that ever come up? Same, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I think the same principles could, could apply. The one difference that's important here, Justice Thiessen, is the common area elements, that yeah. those common area elements under our interpretation, uh, Justice Lillehog, who purchases a unit in year five, has essentially has benefited from five years of uh, the HVAC system. And if we give them a fresh one, two, and 10 in year five, that subjugates the original contractors and designers to a 15-year statute of repose inconsistent with the sta uh, 2004 amendment. Council, two questions, one a factual one. Does the parking garage connect buildings A and B? Um, I'm not sure if I know that answer directly. I think it does. 
Wouldn't that be a factor in determining whether we're talking one improvement or two? Not in this particular loss because we're talking about riser pipes for HVAC, which are common area element claims, Your Honor. And those are two separate improvements, two separate contracts, um, and both in the Krauss-Anderson contract, there was never an agreement uh, to build Building B. And the discussion you had with um, Mr. Alton and Mr. Hansen about transfer of land and transfer of ownership and, and declaration for the contractors of the world, frankly, that's not what the statute of repose is intended to do. What happens after we complete our terms of our contract, we get paid and we move on. And contractors like Krauss Anderson and engineers, like the subcontractors in this case, are entitled to that protection under the 2004 amendment following the Coy's case. And uh, Justice McCaig asked about multi, um, how, about uh, housing subdivisions, where you um, build some homes, you, there's a recession, they sit for a while. Yes. Don't you have the same problem in that case as you would in a condominium case where um, the buyer may may get the home quite a bit after it's built, and the, but the statutory warranties still apply. May I respond? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, one question that you've uh, been asking uh, is relation to mechanics lien statutes, and rather than uneloquently saying it, I direct the court uh, to page 19 and the Hentges case. Yeah, but I'm not asking. About, I'm not asking about the definition of improvement. I'm asking about your your concern that statutory warranties will last for too long. Yes. If we do it on a unit by unit basis, don't you have the same problem with a subdivision? No, I think in the building by building analysis, which I'm sorry, by the unit by unit analysis that the association presents here, in that scenario, 10, uh, 10 single family homes are developed in Woodbury and marketed as one improvement. Under their scenario, there's never a statute of repose, even though the first building is done because the 10th building isn't built. And in our analysis, the building by building analysis, each individual unit, I'm sorry, each individual building has a statute of repose. Justice Thiessen has a question. So, Thank yeah, you. just to follow up on your answer to Justice Lillehug's question about the parking garage. Yes. So if this case was about damage to the parking garage, would we have a different case? Are you saying that we need to look at these as two separate improvements for the common law claims that I'm talking about? Okay. Because the HVAC systems are the separate improvements in a sense? Frankly, that fact and, the, and application of our argument is better in this particular case. And I don't know how the facts would play out and the arguments would play out in the parking garage case, but it, for the facts of this But can we, like, interpret the statute for all time, for all situations, which you we're can. doing? You can. On a case-by-case bill, case okay. 541-051, subdivision one for common law, talks about substantial completion of the construction and the four factors that must meet uh, a specific improvement of real property, which the association concedes in their brief five. So absolutely, you can decide it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, counsel. Um, and now finally, sir, rebuttal. Mr. Hansen, you have three minutes. One thing which Mr. Uh, Zentner brought up again was the common elements. And I would submit that under Chapman versus Prokaski, the whole idea of proration of damages under common elements has already been addressed by the Court of Appeals with review denied by this court. You don't prorate damages on common elements for condominiums. That has been the holding. When it comes to the idea that, as Mr. Thiessen was asking about, for, about uh, doesn't the same risk of loss occur? Yes, the same risk of loss occurs. Uh, risk of 
the, the property staying on the market for a single-family home as it does for a condominium unit. That's the same risk. And the same, Krauss-Anderson had in their contract, they knew these were for sale units. There is no surprise here. During the period of time they were building them between Coase and the 2004 amendment, there was no statute of repose for 327A. So there is no expectation that somehow has been thwarted by them in this particular case. When it comes to um, two things, one, the idea, you are correct, the parking garage is continuous under both. So how would it be if there was a sprinkler system problem in the parking garage? Would we now have one improvement? How is it if Krauss Anderson had gotten a change order on their first contract? Because if you look at their first contract, it says that with a simple change order, that first contract would have been for both buildings. They contemplated doing the second building in their first contract. If we now had one contract, would we now have one improvement? If we had 10 contracts, it was a multiple prime, we now have 10 improvements. Of course not. The last sentence of subdivision one solves this because it defines substantial completion of the construction as being when the buyer can put the improvement to the intended purpose, which is a issue of fact. And under the record here, if you look at all these homeowner affidavits, there's this issue of fact, and if you look at the admissions of housing partner in the deposition and affidavit of Arnie Gregory, they admit that the intended purpose was selling an interest in an integrated condominium, a unit, and an interest in both buildings with all the amenities that they were getting in both buildings. Thank you very much. I will not take up any more of your time. Thanks to all counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. <coughs> I will issue an opinion in due course.